This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Tuesday, May 20th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Ugly Gorilla, Candy Goo, Win XY Happy. These are the names of Chinese hackers the U.S. indicted for economic espionage. Ugly Gorilla, Candy Goo. All right, their unit is known as Unit 61398, which isn't exactly Chaos or Spectre or the Legion of Doom. And this is the first time the U.S. is prosecuting members of the Chinese military for economic hacking, so that's new. But the names, these names are not worthy of the word nefarious. You know what? In fiction... The villains' names are always better than the heroes' names. So probably the best hero's name is James Bond. But Ernst Stavros Blofeld, that is much better. John McClane, eh, Hans Gruber. The mustache practically twirls itself. Othello, oh, nice fella. Iago, Iago, so schemeful. God, good. Lucifer, now, there you go. But in real life, the heroes have better names than the villains. SEAL Team 6, the Granite Mountain Hotshots, or Martin Luther King. The villains, Candy Goo? And that's Candy with a K, by the way. Coming up on the show, the ubiquitous Twitter disclaimer that has attached itself to social media like a barnacle. And the brother of a woman who died in the World Trade Center on 9-11 goes to the new museum and finds it all so weird. We'll talk to him. And in the spiel, the North Korean pop star who shocks the world by actually being alive. But now, on to processing. Actually, not processing, but acknowledging the impossibility of processing loss and 9-11. Steve Kendall's sister, Shari, died during the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center on September 11th. His family was not very public with their mourning, but they were respectful of those who were. They consciously distanced themselves from the planning, discussion, and frequent disagreements about how to make a museum about the day. But when Kandel read a New York Post article about the fact that the 9-11 Museum would have a gift shop, he was, well, actually, he wasn't angry. Anger would have been a clean, straightforward emotion, the sort of clarity that has eluded Kandel for 13 years. It's reflected in the title of an article he wrote for BuzzFeed called, The Worst Day of My Life is Now New York's Hottest Tourist Attraction. And just ponder that for a second. Take away 9-11. Just take whatever was the worst thing to happen to you. And then imagine if it was somehow married, forever paired up with an important historic occasion or a site of national interest, or if years later that became a teachable moment. I talked to Steve in the offices of BuzzFeed, where he's the features editor. Throughout our conversation, he was kind, he was accommodating, he was visibly uncomfortable. He would twist in his chair a little bit, he would cock his head and squint as he talked. More than once, his answers were preceded with an intake of air as he turned his palms up. He was being asked to provide explanations, but of course, the very nature of what he wrote was how easy explanations eluded him. You know, I've sort of very specifically avoided writing anything about this for for a really long time because i was always afraid it was going to look like it was like me grabbing for 
some piece of this. It was really understanding and you obviously have this message of people grieve in their own way and it's certainly not for you to judge. But I do think it was a corrective to thinking that there was any one way to think about this, you know? I, I do think so. it was a corrective to you read the editorial in the post or whatever that says the families don't want this or the families don't want that. And you're making the point that like there's so many of us that you haven't even heard from. But even within a family. Yeah. Does your family even agree about anything? Even within yourself you're conflicted. Totally. Yeah. This is weird there's zero precedent for this it's exhausting it's bizarre it's sometimes like funny i mean just like if you really step back from the horror of it and actually like think about like what we're even talking about here it's crazy it is so crazy this thing happened and it's like consumed everything we've done for 13 years almost like and it's never gonna end yeah it's never gonna end it's just this thing and, and it's it, a and weird laid thing. upon that happens to be the worst thing that ever happened to your family. Yeah. 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 On top of that, as a footnote, yeah. sidebar. Yeah. I mean, I love the piece. I thought it said things that people haven't been saying. And I think that it gets to the difference. What happens when this really historic societal event happens to coincide with this extremely personal event? And there's no great answer to that. I don't know. It seems like there, a certain answer has been forced upon us with things like the museum. I mean, did you, did you ever think of it like that? Never haven't thought of it. Like for minute one, it was never like, it started off as here's this thing that happened to this building and then was like, oh, wait a minute. So it's always been like that. It's always been this sort of wrestling between, you know, this bigger thing and this smaller thing. And it's always been the case. And that was you know, something that my parents sort of decided very, very early on that, like, that was just, we weren't going to, we were around that a lot. We were around that sort of, like, survive family culture or whatever. And we went to a bunch of those things, and there were always people wearing T-shirts with their kids' names on it or their husbands' names on it and posters and placards and all that stuff. And we were just like, no, thanks. You know, you just sort of have to figure out for yourself how you want to do it. But uh, there's no blueprint. Because when I hear people talking about the site or the museum, the site that became the museum, they often say things like, remember, it's a grave. Remember, it's a solemn place. But, you know, I always kind of took that like the actual physical location is important. It's sanctified ground, people say. But you were talking about, you know, remember, it's something important to the country, but it's unbelievably important not where it happened, but what happened. And like the point you made about imagine if there's a museum about the day you found out your mom's chemo wasn't going well or the day the divorce papers were served. So when people would talk about it as the location and sanctified ground, that wasn't quite getting there for you. I mean, that didn't really resonate. No, I get it. I mean, Pearl Harbor was the worst day of someone's life too, but it's also a place to go in Hawaii, you know, like – it's going to be both. You can't, you can't separate those things. They didn't spend $350 million on, on me, on us. It's, it's serving a purpose. And I went in there with like my face flushed, like ready, ready for it. And by the end, it's like, okay, I get what this thing is. And there's lots of places like that. And I've, you know, like getting mad at it is, is, I mean, not very useful. I don't think. Why'd you go? I read the thing in the post about the gift shop and felt a little like sort of fired up. 
so whenever something feels like it's bubbling up, it's like, okay, well, should I be saying something? Should I be doing something? And I felt like a little bit fired up reading like this post story. And then I just happened to have been in Battery Park City with, with my family. And I just sort of like, you know, getting off the subway, like at Chambers and you just sort of see it in the ground. It was like, and I just sort of felt it. And I was like playing with my kids and my wife. And at a certain point, I just sort of looked up and was like, I gotta go. I'm walking over there. And I don't know if I if I would have felt that way if I wasn't like, you know, within like the the gravitational pull of it. Along the way, when you would hear the family say this or some family say that, what would you think about that? No one family thinks the same way about any one thing. So groups of families. I mean, you know, I don't know. I if you if it helps you to be wearing a T-shirt, yeah, with the face on it, yeah do that right you know like definitely we don't want to that's also fine so you know different a lot of other families and have sort of chimed in and and you know a lot of people are really sort of ranting about like the gift shop and like ultimately like i didn't really i didn't really care about the gift shop it's like fine of course it's gonna have a gift shop you know like I don't know. I just, I, I can see why people are going to like focus their, their anger on that. And it's an easy target, but it's, it's more complicated than a gift shop. I think the whole absurdity of it, the whole, the feeling that you got from it, the t-shirt, the, the whole gift thing, shop, but the yeah, whole thing, it, can't it was just the stand up. One 12 and a half sweatshirt. years. It just, just can't. It's yeah. just, you seem to forgive the museum of whatever perceived missteps it has from other people. Do you think that they're that they actually didn't make any missteps, or do you think that they mostly got it right? I don't know. There's no tough. way you can win this. Yeah. You can't. Someone's going to, you know, if, as long as this thing's going to exist, these people are going to want more. There's people, I'm sure, families who wish that the gift shop was bigger. Yeah. And should be selling posters of people's face. You know, like yeah. I didn't go. I didn't like get through the system and make an appointment the way you're supposed to. It was spur of the moment. I went up to a cop. I was like, I'm one of the family. You know, it was like tons of people and he's like oh yeah go right over there and tell them i tell the lady and she's like oh my god sure and she gives me a thing it's like you know they they treat you really well in writing it did you was there any clarity like you know as as a writer does you kind of realize something as you organize your thoughts it came quickly and it made me glad that after 12 and a half years of wondering whether i should write something at least that part was done i didn't have to have that argument with myself anymore so i'm glad i did it um so in an you know for my purposes in an interview, you want to button it with the question that sums it up. But I just think in keeping with the spirit of what you wrote, it's like, let's just end it a little jangly and confused. And done. I got some insights, but it's more the insight was just what a weird process this whole thing is. Yeah. But thanks a lot, Steve. Oh, thank you. Can I help the following customer? Following customer, please. That grading, ungrammatical, and ubiquitous annoyance in every CVS, Dwayne Reed, or Walgreens, where did that come from? We just don't know. And what about not responsible for lost or stolen items? Really? Because you're a coat check. It does seem to be fundamental to the job description that I give you my coat and you don't lose it. Couldn't you just have a sign that says, 
caution, we may be a coat thief ring back here. It's pretty much the same thing. And then what about retweets don't equal endorsements? Where did that come from? Actually, we have the answer. And he's on the line with me right now. Hello. Hello. This is Patrick LaForge, an editor at the New York Times. Back in 2008, in the early days of Twitter, he was a pioneer in the newsroom. Well, we had some training materials in the newsroom. We were trying to do more uh, linking out to other sites in our copy online. And it actually took some training for some of our people who didn't quite get the web back in those days, mm-hmm. people who were you know, more senior editors who were not very digitally minded to really understand that concept. What I was surprised on Twitter was to find that people on Twitter didn't necessarily understand it either or didn't understand what RT meant or that it was somebody else's words that I was repeating. Now they have the automatic button on Twitter, but back then the only way to retweet was to put RT and then copy the other person's tweet. And it's not exactly clear what that meant back then. But are you confident that others directly copied from you this construction of retweets don't equal endorsements? I think it was more one of these viral things. I was followed by a lot of journalists. Another journalist at the Times who was also on Twitter early, Brian Stelter, put it on his bio, borrowing it from me. and, And he even tweeted about it. So I think, I mean, one of the things that was sort of not quite right about it was I was tweeting a lot of New York Times material. And, of course, I work for the New York Times, and I do endorse all right. that material. So, so I didn't right. want people to think, oh, I'm, I'm tweeting my colleague's story, but, uh, you know, it's, I don't know. I'm a little unsure about it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I right. mean, I do endorse everything in the Times, certainly. And, and it's, it's really was not, in the long run, the most precise phrasing, and it started to bother me. That's why I dropped it. But meanwhile, it was sort of taking off everywhere else, and then there were all these sort of mocking parody versions beyond that. So. Right. You don't want to have in your bio, with the limited number of characters available, retweets don't necessarily equal endorsements. That's much worse. Yeah, I did. Well, that was the, I did try to say, you know, except for New York Times content, <laughs> and in other cases, you know, because retweets can mean many things, obviously, yeah. and that's... So it's obvious that you, you had a couple audiences for this phrase, the people who use Twitter who didn't maybe understand it, your colleagues sort of, uh, you know, covering yourself, saying, hey, I'm abiding by the Times high standards. But it also seems to me that mm-hmm. there, it's a clash between old media and new media, not just specifically the rules of Twitter. But back then, the old days of like 2008, there was more of an idea, and tell me what you think of this theory, there was more of an idea that it was the media's responsibility to protect readers from a possible misimpression. And I think now in 2014, the idea is more, especially if it's an internet thing, a little uh, caveat emptor, you know, it's your job to figure out what exactly our motivations are. You know, it's not the job of the person who provides the content to anticipate every possible misimpression. I think that's mostly true, although I, I, and I used to hold that view that you just expressed, that really, this is out there, go look at it, decide for yourself. But I did want to cover myself a little bit back then, because you're right, that was not the way traditional media, you know, we would often, you know, if some other news organization reported something, we would often wait or be late until we confirmed it ourselves. And we still adhere to that standard on many things, but we're a little more likely to say Wall Street Journal had this. It's attributed to them. It's their reporting. And I think people are understand that a little bit more now. Looking back, do you ever think, oh, maybe if I, there was a better phrase I could have used? Yes. Yes. Uh, I probably would have said, uh, you know, retweets are reportage or just avoided it altogether. I, but you I really mean, think the word reportage would have clarified? No, uh, although it's shorter. Okay. So, uh, 
<laughs> and I didn't do the, you know, somebody came up with that does not equal sign. Yes. Uh, I never used that. Oh, which, that would have saved space. Which uh, did save space also, but that's when I started to think, hmm, this is, this is a thing and, and not really something I wanted to uh, endorse. Uh, so I stopped using it um, quite a while ago, and I see it still continues, and I'm, I'm a little surprised that people uh, still do that. It's not so much the journalists anymore, but it seems to be people who who want to protect themselves, at, I guess, at work if they tweet something uh, you know, a little off-color that might upset their boss or, or something. I, yeah. I'm not really sure what they what they think it does for them, except you know, maybe if they get in trouble, they can say to their boss, well, I didn't say I'm just retweeting that. You know? Yeah. Do you think this will attach itself to you, that this is the thing that, uh, well, you know, maybe one day you'll win a Pulitzer, let's hope. But uh, after that, this will be the thing that's mentioned in the first graph of your obit. Well, I hope not, and I think it would be a little hard to explain. I hope I will... I will live long enough that people will be scratching their heads a little bit about retweets or, you know, RT. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that the phrase will still live on uh, uh, that long. And there are other things that I've come up with that I hope would get more attention. You know, I'd rather, uh, you know, started the City Room blog here. I think I've come up with a few other uh, turns of phrases, uh, you know. Um, so uh, I hope so. I'll have to keep striving to uh, accomplish something uh, worthy of that kind of notice, I think. Patrick LaForge is the uh, originator, but no longer endorser of retweets, don't equal endorsements. And he's the editor for news presentation at the New York Times. Thank you. All right. Take care. And now the spiel. We first thought that unmachine gun Hyun Sung Wall, but now we find out that she was unmachine gunned. Let me explain. Hyun Sung Wall was a North Korean pop singer, a chantreuse. It was said that she engaged in acts unbecoming a lady, especially a lady who once maybe dated Kim Jong Un, the dictator. So she was disinvited from all the celebrity galas. No, I'm kidding. This is North Korea. She was machine gunned to death at the behest of Kim Jong Un unmachine gunned her. But now it turns out that never happened. She's alive. She made an appearance with the girl group Morinbang. So the story went from unmachine gunned her to now she's unmachine gunned. Okay, I know that is actually not how you use Korean last names. And more importantly, this isn't a story about unpuns. This is a story about the glory of song. This is Morinbang. The Kim Jong-un approved girl group, but they're really a quasi-girl orchestra. In this song, Let's Study, the five female singers sing, Let's learn for our country, knowledge is strength. Let's be passionate and advance our science and technology. And in this song, well, you know this song, this is Rocky. Behind the singers, here's what you have. You have three all-girl violinists, a cellist. I counted three all-girl keyboard players, a drummer, a guitarist. And in the video in the background, there's Rocky running on the beach, so that's not from the original. And I'm also going to guess that among North Korea's human rights violations is not paying licensing fees for Rocky. But 
Among their human rights violations, we cannot include executing pop singers, at least not pop singer Hyun Song Wool. She, by the way, has been misidentified in the media as the leader of Morin Bang. It is not true. As do all the newspapers that say she was executed in August because there she was a couple of days ago on national TV. Hyun Sung Wool is said to have had a big hit with the North Korean classic, Excellent Horse-Like Lady. Only, let's be real, that is not close to how the song's title should be translated. It's more like Girl in the Saddle of a Steed. And it just goes to show there is so much we get wrong about North Korea because it is a nation of secrets, because we willfully misinterpret songs, because perhaps we are ensorcelled by this version of Rocky. But we know this. The once thought of dead Hyun Sung Wool lives and presumably is going to fly now. And that's it. Producer Andrea Salenzi helps pave a wide avenue for ushering in a shining renaissance by bringing about a revolutionary turn in the creation of literary and artworks. Executive producer of Slate Podcasts, Andy Bowers, is a peerlessly great man who made contributions to the cause of global independence. You could subscribe in iTunes, give us a review when you're there. More importantly, sign up for our daily email at slate.com slash gist email. Email just at slate.com. Tell us if you like selective quotations from official North Korean press releases. And remember, now is the time for all creators and artists to make strenuous efforts to unconditionally produce masterpieces required by the era and desired by the people. And thanks for listening.